When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. Well, if you're a regular podcast listener to Moments That Rock, you'll know that I don't introduce the people because I think it's better that they introduce themselves. Well, hi there. My name is Shadow Stevens. Well, I became known as one of the most recognized voices in the world as the host of the biggest radio show in the world, American Top 40, with a billion listeners um, a week in 110 countries. And that was for the better part of a decade. And, and as an actor, I was in two TV series, Dave's World, Max Monroe, uh, Loose Cannon, uh, Baywatch, The Larry Sanders Show, two versions of Hollywood Squares that became quite successful. In advertising, I uh, am a Clio Award winner. I'm feeling so fancy. I uh, produced the um, campaigns for the Blues Brothers movie, 48 Hours, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, the Nederlander Theaters, Concert Tours. I, um, I, I starred and produced in the most successful uh, regional advertising campaign in U.S. history. It's called Fred Rated for Federated. We did over 1,100 commercials. They were like um, kind of Monty Python-style commercials. I called it bludgeon advertising. Um, in radio, I started uh, the alternative rock format when I uh, launched world-famous K-Rock FM in Los Angeles. Then I went to um, kickstart the album rock format with KMET uh, FM here in Los Angeles. They became number one. I was the first person in America to play David Bowie and Queen and uh, won the Billboard the Billboard Magazine Personality of the Year Award. I've been the voice of the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, uh, the voice of the Antenna TV Network for five years, the Happy Together Tour, uh, endless commercials, and my latest passion is what I call mental radio mentalradio.net it's been described as word jazz and an audio visual acid trip of spiritual crack <laughs> i think that's enough bullet point <laughs> i uh, i've done a few things at the top of my radio career i quit 
um, because I couldn't take the politics and the backstabbing. And so I would either, something would reach an end and I would have to go off and create something new or it would be because I quit um, in a temperamental tantrum saying, no, you won't make me into you. I'm going to uh, do something else. So there's been a lot of different things of radio and television, advertising and, um, you know, and creating product, um, which is, I think, probably what I do best, write and produce. Mental radio started with me here in my studio, which is a pretty sophisticated studio. And I realized it would be on a lockdown and everybody was freaking out. So I thought, what can I what can I create that's funny and uplifting? And I started working on it. I started writing it and producing it. And it started attracting friends um, and people that I didn't know. People said, I love what you're doing. How can I help? I do voices. I'm, you know, a voice actor. Uh, my writing partner was a, is a screenwriter. And he came in right at the beginning. I said, here's what I'm working on. He goes, oh, I am so in. I love that. And uh, we've written now 24 chapters and 11 hours of short stories adventures and serials with cliffhanger endings it's pretty wild if you listen on earphones it's um cinematic it moves around in your head sounds come from behind you and and all the characters are moving left and right and it's uh, becomes a whole universe it's like i have characters like guy good Guy Good is a Western, sort of like the Lone Ranger. Guy Good, Guy and his sidekick Gabby head across the desert to cut across, to hope to put an end to the gloom before it hits the big cities. And uh, he gets in a fight at the, uh, you know, at the uh, saloon. And uh, he says, um, I got a feeling there's a flare-up on a rampage over in decadence, and we got to put the whammy on it before it takes down the whole caboodle. And the saloon owner, Lamon Souffle, says, a flare-up? The guy says, a lot of gunk buildup on the whackabouts and flatulence. And, yeah, yep, the puffed-ups and the out-of-lines, you can smell them coming. Ah, the stink of too much and the hint of skunk. Well, let's talk about David Bowie then. Um, initially, I was 23 years old, and I was made program director of one of the biggest stations in the country. I was really freaking out. I had no, you know, I had to figure out what would be entertaining, what would be theatrical, what would be interesting, and the music uh, approach was looking for new music. And I had a friend in the UK who sent me a letter and said the hottest thing in the in in england is this guy david bowie i'll send you a record if you want and went yes so he sent me the record and it was amazing and we started playing it regularly and it was very exciting so then as time went on i was on the air at kmet this is two stations later this is a, a big album rock station and my my uh, head of the news department named Brother John. He had the voice of God. And it was Shakespeare's birthday. And on Shakespeare's birthday, we were doing mock Shakespearean, you know, 
Wilfor thou goest. Oh, yes, I understand. And it was, you know, and we were on that day. I was stoned out of my mind. I'm sitting there in this little um, studio. The door locked. Everything was great. The music was great. There's a knock on the door. But, uh, and you know, you get a little anxious, you know, when there's a knock on the door. So I go over the door and I uh, open it, unlock it, open it. And there's David Bowie and a friend. And he said, hey, I just had to come down and see where all this madness was coming from. And I was like, not prepared. You know, normally if I'm going to have a guest, I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to know, you know, how to take care of it, what kind of things to ask. I went, so, well, so, and... Well, come on in. Uh, you want to take over? You want to just do the David Bowie show? Um, no. And he said, no, 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 no. I, I just had to see, you know, where it was coming from. And it, apparently it's all coming from your head. <laughs> he said, I brought you a gift. And he brings me this little package. He takes out this little package. And I open it up. And it is a soft cover book. And the cover had been made, custom made out of felt. It was that green felt. And on it, it, it said, the complete works of Shakespeare to shadow from Bowie. And I opened up the book, and it was the complete works of Chairman Mao. I thought, that's the greatest joke I ever heard in my life. It was so fantastic. I laughed out loud. I went, oh, my God, I still have it. You know, at one time in one of my businesses, I had it uh, under glass uh, behind velvet ropes. <laughs> you know, it was just like, uh, yeah, David Bowie gave me this and I, and I still have it in my, um, in my collection. So, uh, that was like one of the great moments, um, in history. He gave me the only gold record that I kept after all these years is that one. And that's from David Bowie for four different albums that I helped launch. And, um, and that's signed by him. Although the signature is starting to get kind of soft after years of hanging on a wall. Nobody has ever been cooler than David Bowie. Uh, the Bowie documentary that just came out this year was really spectacular. They did a beautiful job. And I, I learned a lot of things I didn't know about him. And, and it was uh, really fascinating. And then a, a book, he mentions that time of going and seeing this radio personality named Shadow, but he remembered it all wrong. He remembered it as being like first thing in the morning or something, and no, no, it wasn't. It was in the middle of the afternoon. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And he got key things wrong, but there it is. Me. Proof. I'm the only other person that knows that happened. <laughs> it was one of those great moments in time. We had a few of those. I, I produced a show called The Flo and Eddie Show. Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, the Turtles, two of the greatest, most talented, funny guys in the world. And they came to me when I started the station. And they said, we'd like to do a show. And I, and I love you guys. And you're hilarious. Um, so we carved out the show. It was called Flo and Eddie by the Fireside. And it was every Sunday night. And it was always theme night. And there would be a theme. And it would be you know, Mexico or something. And they would come in with stacks of records, albums and 45s that were on the theme. And then as I produced it, it was no song ever played longer than 20 to 30 seconds. 
So there was an assault. Anyway, so we did the show and it was um, very exciting because they'd talk on top of each other and then the room was filled with people and everybody was drinking tequila and, and smoking weed and, and it was a big party and it was really funny. And um, Keith Moon came in for one of the shows and uh, the place is packed and we're, he's sitting in a tall director's chair and at one point, and he's pretty out of it, and at one point he leans back, falls on the floor uh, backwards under the director's chair, and the whole room, it had to be 30 or 40 people, all stopped and tried not to laugh as his bodyguards quickly picked him up, put him upright, dusted him off, and then he started talking. We all acted like nothing happened. But no one who was there ever forgot no, so everything is is bubbling on and going 100 miles an hour and everybody's talking and laughing and there's a knock on the door and Ringo shows up. Well, I just had to see where all this madness is coming from. I seem to have tracked madness. <laughs> <laughs> Keith Moon falling over and then being picked up and then, um, and then uh, you know, like within, within the hour, Ringo Starr showed up. It was that kind of thing. It attracted the who's who of... Uh, you can hear some of it, little pieces of it, on my website on shadow.com if you look under the radio section. And it'll say K-Rock K and KMET. And it has some pictures. Um, but everybody came in. Kind of the who's who of the, of, of the music business. And it was all part of Flo and Eddie by the Fireside, which we then took to KMET afterward and, uh, and continued for another year. And then that was that. Good times. At the time, because radio was the social media of the day, there it's where you learned about new music and where you learned about what was happening in movies and television. And, and the personalities were fun and funny and entertaining and played great new songs and exposed you to new music. And, and now there is 11 million different ways to find music and connect with other people and get the information about television and about streaming and about movies and music and everything. It's uh it's a, it's a whole different world, but it was uh, a magical moment in time. As, as you saw on, on um, once upon a time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino, that was pretty dead on the, uh, the soundtrack of that particular era, 1969, it was before I got out here, but um, it was uh, driven by KHJ, Boss Radio. And they were what everybody listened to. And then after I came out, um, I worked for KHJ for six months. And I was the um, sidekick to a very famous personality named Steve Allen. And um, I'm on this national television show. And it came time when I was supposed to have been promoted at KHJ. And they said, well, we don't know whether you want to be in television or radio. What? Excuse me? Television promotes radio, which promotes television, which promotes radio, which promotes, like, what's the downside? Well, yeah, well, we just don't know, uh, you know, we got to have somebody that's really dedicated to radio. And so I said, I'll tell you what, 
you don't have to give me a raise. Just put it in my contract that I will absolutely get the next full-time position. And they said, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. So I quit. And then I, I got a job with their main competitor, the other giant station in town. And during that time, and I was real happy. I was, and I went back to art center school and uh, part-time and I was studying art and uh, being on the radio and being a personality and life was good. And I just was unhappy with the way they were playing music. I, I did all this research about album music, but everybody I, I knew was listening to album music. Why are we just playing top 40 music? So I did. So I took in all my research and gave it to the general manager, hoping they would just change the music format. And he fired the program director and made me program director. I wasn't <laughs> even asking for it. I didn't. It never occurred to me. <laughs> my thinking was part fear, and I was married with a young son. And wait a minute, if I do what you're telling me to do, it's going to fail, and then I'm going to be blamed. So. I'm not going to do this. So basically, that's what happened because I, I I got real you know successful as a program director, and we beat KHJ. It was now the new station that was number one was KRLA because it was so funny and fun and had great people, very entertaining, great funny funny promotions, and then they started making taking credit for it, and they were ordering me to do these things. And so I quit. And my resignation was a piece of art that I drew. <laughs> it was this very old man with big bags under his eyes and fairy wings. And it said, last night, a vision came unto me. It said, quit, my child. There's no hope. <laughs> and thus it is written. And thus it is done. And, um, and so I quit. And I just want to stay. I just let me go back to school. I, I will be on the radio and um, do my job. So I do. And they hire a new program director. He comes in and he makes some changes. And I don't care. I'm in art school. It's fine. So one day, the guy, I get called in by the new program director. And he says, I've got to let you go. And I laughed. <laughs> it's hilarious. He says, I'm serious. I'm like, You're, excuse me? It's, and I talked to him for two hours. He said, I know you're, uh, he says, you're, you're always walking around here smiling. I know you're cynical about what I'm doing. Right? Are you insane? I'm the only happy person around here. I'm trying to bring everybody up. I'm happy. I'm going to art school. Life is good. I'm on the radio. I am having a good time. <laughs> and he says, well, I've got to go with what I, what I stated. Okay, so I go and I pick up my my severance check from the accountant who glared at me from behind his desk. And he said, I hope you go out and spend this money in the first two weeks and then you don't know where your next penny is coming from. Maybe you will come to the meaning of life. <laughs> I said, what's the meaning of life, Don? He goes, management is God. I went, oh, whoa, man. He goes, it's true. And this is, he raised his voice and he thumped his finger on his desk with every, with every point. They put the food in your mouth, thump. The roof over your head, thump. Management, thump. Is thump. God, thump. I feel sorry for you. I've got to go. Goodbye. 
so I left and I didn't know what I was going to do. And a couple of weeks later, they called me back and rehired me for more money. And I don't have any idea why. Um, but I was kind of like, you know, not knowing what to expect from them from that. No one. So now along comes K Rock and they offer me a job for their new FM station they were going to put on the air, but they didn't know how long it would take. If I just wanted to come over, they would um they would give me a, a any car that I wanted. Besides more money. And he said, What kind of car do you like? I went, uh Porsche. Got it. What color? <laughs> so Porsche pulled me into this awful little station. And I've been at Carolee was state of the art, brand new with engineers at the Huntington Sheridan Hotel in Pasadena with gardens. And it was phenomenal. And I go to this funky little studio in Burbank. And I go, well, I've got to make the best of it. In fact, I've gone back and I've listened to some. I just put up um, a few months ago an air check of me in 1977 at K-Rock. Now, there's a period of time that I remember as just being okay. And as I listened to it, and it was real good quality, it was jaw-dropping how original it was. And it was all up, and it was all rock, and it was all party. And it was highly produced with these magnificent jingles that I produced. I'd forgotten how powerful they were on the air because they were like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing, you know, these heavenly, gigantic, ah, K-Rock, ah, mighty rock, AM, FM stereo. It's hilarious. And then we, and you come out of that with uh, Ballroom Blitz or, or, um, or Queen, Keep Yourself Alive. You know, it's the the juxtaposition of these theatrical theatrical kind of um, structures that kept reminding you of the personality of the station, and then all this music. And it was, um, you know, at the time we were, we were starting to um, unveil punk rock, and and it was real exciting the Ramones and everything. But then we're also playing Taj Mahal. You know, it was. Black music, white music, new music, up music, exciting music, um, ELO and Queen and and um, and the um, really unexpected music that never got real, you know, the waitresses or, you know, you just completely forgot about it and went, oh, they were really fun. So that's on YouTube. If you look at it, uh, look it up. It's called The Birth of K-Rock. And like it's pretty entertaining. It's like a like a movie, and I added video visuals to it so that it made it more um, interesting and visually appealing. With lots of pictures of the artists, and you know, little pictures of uh, of me at the time in the studio, and the, how awful the studio was. I mean, awful. I mean, awful, awful, like hilariously awful. So I could go on with these stories for hours because they're all full of intrigue and backstabbing and um, uh, the unexpected. Great stuff. Shadow Stevens, remarkable career and some great stories. And as he said himself, he'll be back with more stories. I'll make sure of that. But for now, we'll take a short break and then we'll be back with part two of Mr. Mike Gormley. He was on the show a few weeks ago telling you about his times with the police and Miles Copeland and A&M Records, etc., etc. 
more stories to come after this. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. As a kid and then as a journalist, I always thought for some reason, if you had a number one record at Christmas time, somehow that to me sounded like like a goal, if you would. And and not being a musician, I had to do it another way. And sure enough, the Bangles were number one for four weeks over Christmas in 1987 with Walk Like an Egyptian. So I you got the you got the number one record. And you couldn't relax. You could hardly enjoy Christmas because there was so much to do. There was yeah. so much going on. So I found out that it's not all that great to have a number one record over Christmas. But it's you wouldn't turn it down. But it's not going to it's not going to mean that you get a chance to sit around by the tree with the family for a while. You're you're off and running. And um, uh, but it, it it worked out. You know, I mean, they had a couple of number one records and. And, and had great a career, a career, but um, uh, that I remember that as being kind of special. I also, um, you know, one year I guess it was eighty seven or eighty eight. They won um, 
at the Brit Awards. They were the international band of the year. And so we were over there and um, George Martin came up to us and started chatting. And he had, at that point, he had just started to listen to the Beatles again for the first time after John's death. He had just started to listen to them professionally. He was putting together some album, you know, or mixing it or remixing it. And um, he was telling us about that. That was that was pretty special just to hear it directly from him. Uh, there are there were a lot of good times. You know, they they did a show. The only time I've been to Italy um, were, were they at that, the San Remo Festival, and it was um, the Bangles, Whitney Houston, and Paul Simon. And uh, you know, it's a TV show. There were a lot of other people, but the whenever when the Bangles played, that was the that was the setup, and. Um, uh, and Paul, I didn't, I, I met him, but I didn't really know Paul Simon and we're, we're leaving the building and Paul Simon's coming in the building and I'm trapped between the two of them. The bangles are coming this way. Paul Simon's coming this way. So I just went, Paul, meet the bangles, the bangles, this is Paul Simon. And they introduced them and, and then got out of the way, you know, and, and let them talk. And then eventually we had a big record with, uh, with a Paul Simon song. You know, there's there are moments like that, or, or at the Grammys, and it's being backstage at the Grammys when the Bengals were uh, were presenting, and uh, it, it, there was a lot, a lot with that band because Miles saw them first and asked me to go see them, and I did, and I called them up. I said, I don't, I don't think so. I'm not sure. He said, Go back and see them. You got to go see them again. So I went back to see them again, and I and, and their harmonies were fantastic, and. They had some good songs at that point, and I, I could I, I could see what he was talking about. So uh, he was out of town, which is almost all the time. Um, and so I took them out to lunch and sat down and said, and they thought we were going to ask offer them a, um, a sign to IRS records. I believe that was it. And I said, no, I'm not with IRS records. I'm we're uh, we want to know about managing you. And they seemed pretty thrilled about that at the time, but but then they changed went through a change of bass players and uh, and had to change the name. They were called the Bangs, and there was a band in the state of Maine called the Bangs. So there were so we could have the name the Bangs everywhere in the world except Maine, except state of Maine, which of course wouldn't work because you know we want to go there too. So. Um, and they had to be in uh, they had to be in Toronto at a very last minute thing to uh, to go on tour with the English beat, um, and they had they had to get to Toronto. And I think Vicky was still still had a day job at the time and had the very I, I think they had like a week or two to get to Toronto and get everything together. But we had to come up with another name, and several we just sat in my office on La Brea Avenue in in L.A. in Hollywood and. Um, and the bangles came out of that you know he and i always got along which didn't happen with a whole lot of people <laughs> at the time um i i i recognize him as a brilliant guy but a guy who very confident and after a while it became there were three or four of us who worked with miles on different different capacities but we always felt like we had to, we would listen to his ideas 
he'd come up with 10 ideas. One of them would be brilliant. A couple of them would work pretty well. And, if, and the others were just lousy. And he always picked one of the lousy ones to focus on. So we, we had to, we, we would have to convince him, no, you, you're wasting your time. This is going on over here. And he, he, he would then, he would then turn, I think most of the time, but he wouldn't give up. He believed in, if he believed in somebody and he believed in you, whatever, he, he went to the wall. And, and of course he did with the police and he did with all, all of his artists and, and, uh, He'd come up with wacky ideas and brilliant ideas, and and uh, it, it was a, a force of nature. I sat with him. Um, uh, I actually interviewed him about a year ago on a on a, a Zoom podcast that I pop on every once in a while. And his book had just come out, and so we sat and talked. And he was in his his castle in France, and I was in, of course, L.A. And um, we just talked about some of the old times and and some of the things we accomplished and he accomplished and and things in his book and so on so um and and that was very enjoyable it was very nice to to chat with him um i he was looked, interviewed a couple of years ago for an art documentary they're doing on him but i i don't know what's happened to that it hasn't it hasn't come out tell you an interesting story uh so i i had my office miles didn't have an office in la he had a house in la but he was always traveling so he didn't have really have an office uh, and he had an assistant i don't know where she was located maybe in london maybe maybe here he was known as a screamer i mean people seem to think he was and he was he was a he was a a, a big presence when he walked into the room he wasn't he was tall he wasn't a big guy. He just the the, the confidence that he had um, had him stand out in a crowd, and um, but he was also known as a you know a tough tough negotiator and and and, a, and not not short of screaming at you if it was going to make it happen. So I, I walked into my office one day and Miles is sitting there at my desk on my phone. <laughs> just tearing somebody apart, just tearing. I felt so bad. I didn't even know who it was at the other end of the line, but I wanted to get on and say, it's okay, don't worry. The conversation comes to an end. He says something like, yeah, well, get it done. Boom, slams down the phone, looks up at me and smiles and says, so you want to go to lunch? Miles was, I had a London office. He had an LA office. I don't even know if it was actually an office or just in his mind, but he signed two bands based in LA, Oingo Boingo and Walla Voodoo. And that's when he came to me and the police just were exploding. And he had to focus on that. And um, so that's when he came to me and he said, you want to get out of here, meaning A&M, you want to get out of here and we'll start a company and these will be our first two bands. And uh, it didn't take me too long to say, yeah, let's do that. Because it was uh, it was something new for me. I shouldn't talk to him about him in the past tense. He's still around, um, but uh, he's uh, a brilliant guy. And the reason we got along, where where other people didn't, is uh, I think two things happened. One, uh, New York-based publicist, uh, a woman, she heard that Miles was going. You know, and she knew him, Miles, and she was she knew he was going to L.A. He was on his way to A and M Records in L.A. 
And she just said some nice things about me, um, unbeknownst to me. He didn't tell me that for a long time. So he came into A&M. He didn't know a lot of the people. He came in being told the, something nice about me, whatever it was. And um, I think that got us past uh, the, the learning stage where he just felt because of her recommendation, we would get along and, and we did. Um, and he just never, he never did the screaming bit at me. He never yelled and did all of that kind of stuff. He would, he'd go on tour with, with Squeeze or the police and he would come into my office at the end of the tour. And I'm telling you, he'd have a bag full of, in those days, film. I would have them all developed for him at the, at A&M's cost. I think he liked that a lot. And I did it because it gave us just tons of photos, you know, different photos. They were taken by him mainly. But there were pictures of guys on horses and guys backstage and guys in kitchens and guys, wherever he was with them, he was taking pictures. But he was he was definitely a, a highlight. What, what irritated me was that I he would be in L.A. He'd be in my office. We'd be talking about something and he would leave. And it was like he, he either he was going to get a sandwich. He was going to the bathroom. So he would just walked out the door and then I wouldn't see him again. And I call up his assistant. I go, well, where the hell is he? He says, oh, he's got, he's on his way to London. <laughs> was like, well, he didn't even say goodbye. He didn't even say he was leaving. He just disappeared. And it was like, I wasn't finished talking to him. But, uh, you know, so it was, he was just a character like that. But, you know, all three of the brothers, the uh, Copeland brothers, were amazing guys. Stuart, very bright guy, tremendous musician, um, um, heart of gold kind of guy and uh and uh you know and so it, all his his brothers were all very very smart and very very um productive um uh, his other brother had fbi agency and that agency booking agency was highly instrumental in in what was called new wave bands in the 80s <clears throat> he had them all he booked them he booked them all over the country and uh uh, and they they didn't have any money, you know. Somehow he got them enough money to get them going to the next gig. It was, he was really very much very important to a lot of those bands, including the Police. They knew what they were doing. That they were from different worlds, you know. They grew up in Beirut, basically. Father was a uh, uh, in the CIA. Great stories from from those people, and, and that and Miles was uh, important to me in a lot of ways. We were talking about how some artists or some of the big artists are easier to work with. And I was saying that I think because a newer artist or an artist who's been at it for a while without getting over the top completely is is under a lot of pressure and and they just they can't relax yet. Whereas uh, somebody who is who's has has a success going for them at least they're over that top, but they're also extremely busy and also under a whole other kind of pressure. Um, and I'm. Um, Sting and I were chatting about it at one time where if an artist starts getting successful and things start happening for them, you, they, at least in those days, and maybe I think still today, you kind of have to give up for the next two years anyway, you kind of have to give up a social life and your family and everything. Because if in that when things start clicking into place, if you pause, you may not get back into place. 
and you've just you know you've you've stopped the momentum the police they never stopped they were touring all the time and touring in in places other people hadn't toured like like india interviews all the time and if they had a day off you'd come up with something for them to do and uh, you're not thinking about that they need a day off you just oh you got a day off well we can do these interviews and most of the time they'd say yes Great stuff and really solid advice there from Mike Gormley. I totally agree. The uh, uh, the larger, the bigger artists are easy, the easier ones to work with, mostly because uh, they don't arrive wasted, they don't arrive late, they're personable, they're nice to people, etc., etc. And before that, some wonderful stories from a wonderful career from Shadow Stevens, who will be back in weeks to come. Um, I do love doing this podcast because basically the premise being that if I like hearing people's stories and they excite me, then why shouldn't other people like them? Uh, the other problem is I tend to, edit, when I come to edit them, I tend to take me out of pretty much everything. So maybe I'll appear a little bit more in my podcast in weeks to come. But I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, subscribe. This is called Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael This part of the wonderful Pantheon group of podcasts, where there's a multitude of excellent music-based podcasts. See you with the next one very soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.